Amen. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Last week, we had the privilege of diving into Matthew chapter 6. We, we saw just eight amazing, beautiful, profound promises about our troubles, our trials, our suffering, and how in the midst of all of them, we don't have to be anxious. But we talked about how those were overarching promises. They were promises that were kind of an umbrella over all of our anxieties. And, and I talked last week about how the Bible does not want those to stay vague and general. The Bible has so many promises that are specific, practically applied to every single fear and anxiety that we have. So this morning, what I want us to do is go through 10 different kinds of fears anxieties or worries that we might have and find out what the scripture says holding on to promises that God has given to us so that in the midst of those anxieties we can cling to the hope that we have in God's word it's kind of like if you've ever done a project around the house and you try to do something with a tool that was not designed for that specific job I remember we were trying to put a security door on, a kind of a screen door above our door on, on front of our door. And I was trying to use a screwdriver to screw in the big, huge bolts that are supposed to go in through the wood, through that door. But I couldn't do it because there's these special screws that are obviously there so that if somebody wanted to break into our house, they couldn't just use a screwdriver to undo the screw to take off the security door and, and come into our house. But I didn't have that special tool. You needed to get it from the manufacturer. You needed a special order. I didn't have that tool. And so it was so frustrating. Even to this day, you can come, you can see that the screws that I tried to screw in with a regular flathead screwdriver, the paint's all chipped off of them. Some of them are going in the wrong direction. Uh, I cut my thumb so many times because there's these huge screws that aren't designed for a flathead screwdriver to, to go into the slot. And I just kept on missing and kept on getting frustrated I remember my son walked by as I was doing it and said, uh, how are you doing there, Dad? <laughs> I said, not, not too good. Thanks so much. It's a frustrating thing when you do not have the right tool for the right job. Same is true spiritually. Sometimes we are looking to a problem and we're saying, God, I don't know where you are in the midst of this problem. I don't know what you're doing. And we don't have the right tools in our spiritual tool belt to pull out in those moments and to use to conquer our fears, our worries, and our anxieties. So this morning, we're going to take our tool belt, our spiritual tool belt. We're going to put it on. We're going to look at all the places for these tools to hang. And then we're going to place from God's word the appropriate tools in the right places so we can take them out when needed. And God knows we need a lot of these tools in these moments. So let's begin in James chapter 1. I want to read these verses and ask God's blessing on our time together. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. They're going through their own suffering, dispersed because of persecution. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Father, we bank on that promise. We are foolish people. We are not wise. We need wisdom. If anyone is lacking wisdom, let him ask. That's all of us. We are all lacking the wisdom that we need to encounter the trials that we're going through in such a way where we bring glory to Christ, where we magnify him as better by far than anything in this world, even relief from the trials. So, Father, we need wisdom. We don't want to be double-minded, as verse 6 would go on to say. We don't want to be questioning whether or not you can give these things to us. We don't want to be doubting your word. And so we say with that father who had a demon-possessed son, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, help us this morning. Be our guide. And Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes 
to behold wonderful things from your law. You have written these promises for us. They are blood-bought promises at Calvary. They are ours to hold, to cling to, and to use in the midst of whatever trials we may go through. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see them and to apply them, even this day. For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Ten different fears that you and I face on a regular basis. I want to start kind of a, a funnel. I want to start general and move down to the more specific. So anxiety number one, just trials, just overarching trials. When you're going through trials and you're worried and you're anxious, what are you to do? What promises can you pull from this book to cling to and to use in the midst of those moments as you're going through trials. Well, let me give you a couple verses, and uh, I hope that you have your Bibles open and ready to turn. I hope you are ready to be moving all throughout the Bible. We are going to go through a number of different passages. I wanted to, uh, originally I was planning on doing this portion of uh, the sermon from last week and just kind of giving you some specific applications, but I want to take time this morning and look through these verses. I want your eyes to see them. I don't want to just quote them to you. I want you to see these promises, maybe even underlining them, maybe writing them down for reference for later, but memorizing these verses. So cling to these verses. So beginning in James chapter 1, one of the first promises that we have when dealing with trials that we can cling to is that they are going to come, right? Verse 2 in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials, when trials are not a surprise to God. They're not taking him uh, by surprise, just off guard as to, wait, what is going on here? He knows. He's given us promises in the scriptures that they're going to happen. You can write down John chapter 16, verse 33. You know it. We quote it very often. Uh, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart and take comfort, for I have overcome the world. So trials, when we go through trials, they're not a surprise to God. Therefore, they shouldn't be a surprise to us. Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Verse 19, Psalm 34, verse 19. Here's a promise. Here's a verse you can cling to in the midst of trials. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Notice the psalmist does not say the Lord delivers them from them all, delivers us from them all. No, it's out of them. You're going to get into them. You're you're going to go through them. They're not anything that you can avoid. But God's going to get you out. Notice also, it doesn't say how he's going to get us out. Maybe the way that he gets us out is our own death. He doesn't say how he's going to deliver us. He also doesn't say when he's going to deliver us. But we know that he will. We know that he will. Psalm 34, verse 19 is such a profound promise. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we preached on this a few Sundays ago. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only this, not only the the hope that we have of heaven and the justification that we have in Christ, but we also exult in our tribulations. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. And hope never disappoints because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We can use the tool of Romans chapter 5, verse 3 in the midst of trials to say, God, though these are painful, they're not purposeless. They're purposeful. Even though they're painful, the the purposeness of the the trial, the purposes that God is using in the trial, they don't take away the pain. But oh, to know that God is doing something in the midst of that trial. It's like if you're working out, if you're doing curls with a dumbbell, you are making life hard for your bicep, right? You're pushing against it. You're making life difficult. And as you make life difficult for that bicep and it hurts, You're growing that bicep. Obviously, I know nothing of this, and I have no experience, as you can see, from my own arms. I look more like Gumby than like the Hulk. But we know this principle to be true. You press against a muscle, and you push it enough times, and it grows. Same thing is true about our own trials and difficulties. Go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. 
What's going to separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. Nothing can separate us. Even though it's written, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. Even though we're dying and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We're convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We're overwhelmingly conquerors. More than conquerors. A conqueror kills its enemy. A conqueror defeats the enemy and the enemy's done. It's gone. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? To be more than a conqueror doesn't mean just to kill that enemy. It means actually to take that enemy and use it for your own purposes. That's what God says we can be. I mean, think even of the coronavirus, right? This virus desires to isolate us. By necessity, we have to be isolated. We can't be with one another. And yet, in the middle of this time, I don't know about you, but I've experienced more intentional uh, reaching out to one another. We're more than conquerors even over the coronavirus. Maybe what the enemy would desire to use for evil to separate us, to keep us isolated. We're more than conquerors, and we can use it for our good and for God's glory. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We don't lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, listen to what Paul says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Momentary and light. If you've ever been through a trial... Those two words are typically not the words you would use to describe that trial. It's not momentary. It seems to go on forever. There seems to be no end. And it's not light. It's a burden that's pressing down on you. But Paul says it's momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of glory. Just imagine those scales. Remember those old-fashioned scales, two plates with the chain holding both sides of them. Put on one side everything that we have in our afflictions and our troubles and our trials. Put on the other side glory and the eternal weight of the hope that we have in Christ. And it just goes so far down, throws all those other trials off. There's no comparison. It's not even worth comparing. If if you're like me, you read this and you think, well, that's a little bit uncaring of Paul to say that my trials and my suffering are just momentary in light. That seems uncaring and unkind. But we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand Paul. Paul is not saying that the problems that we face in life aren't real. He's not saying that the problems aren't painful. He's not saying that the problems aren't significant. They are. He's not even saying that they shouldn't weigh heavy on us or be a burden to us. He's not saying, hey, get over it. They're easy. Don't worry about them. He's not minimizing suffering. What he is doing is maximizing glory. His sight is so locked in on glory that it makes everything else lose its grip on his attention. Everything else around him, because he's so transfixed on glory, everything else loses any perspective, any attention that he would give it. For those of you who are married, maybe you'll remember for you husbands standing at the altar, looking down the aisle, and that moment when the doors open and you see your bride walking down the aisle. You, you see her and there is no one else in the room but her. You can't even really see her dad walking her down the aisle, right? He's gone. You're just so fixated on her. Now, are those people actually gone? No. But you have your eyes so fixated on her that you lose your grip on everything else. All of the other things, the other people, the other things that are going on, uh, the decorations, everything else loses its grip on your attention. That's what Paul is saying here. Fix your eyes on the hope of glory. And it doesn't mean the problems aren't going to be here. They're still here. They just won't hold our attention. How do we do that? Verse 18, he says, While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look at the things that are not seen. How do we do that? I love what he says. You look past the temporal into the eternal. You see where the temporal stops, and you go through that into the eternal. It's kind of like those, um, those pictures that have in the negative space, there's a design. You remember like 
Um, FedEx has it where in the FedEx there's a little arrow in the negative space. You see the letters and then there's a little arrow in that negative space. Same thing is true with like the, the NBC uh, logo. You have all the, the colors and then you have that little peacock right in the middle. What Paul is saying is look at the temporal. Look at everything you can see and then press through to what you can't see. That's the hope that we have. That's what we cling to. That's our hope in the midst of trials. Paul is saying that if you want to see what is not visible... See where what is visible runs out completely and then press on through to glory, which will never run out. Those are just a few verses that you can hold in your heart, that you can have in your tool belt in the midst of trials to cling to. I would encourage you to memorize these verses. Write them down somewhere in your house so that you can see them and they get into your mind, they get into your heart. So in the moment of trial, you you can ask, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? And you can go back to what I know based off of the word of God. Now, how do I think about it? Now, what can I feel? So that's trials. In the midst of trials, number two, we feel weak often. In the midst of trials, we feel very weak. Turn just to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a few chapters over from where we were. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We feel weak in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials. They knock us out. They knock the wind out of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Remember, this is Paul asking three times that that messenger of Satan, that thorn in the flesh, be taken away. I'm weak. God, help me. Notice in the exact same book where he said, it's momentary, it's light. It's not worth being compared. In the same book, he goes, but please, God, get me out of this. And then he says this, verse 9. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. So what does Paul say based off of that? If God's grace is sufficient in my weakness, then most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Or specifically, he is strong through us. I don't know if you feel weak, even during the midst of this crazy coronavirus. Maybe you feel weak. Maybe you feel like, I don't know how much longer I can stand. Paul says, you don't have to be strong. Christ is your strength. Feeling weak is the necessary byproduct of suffering. And you feel completely out of control. I don't have control over anything. But notice this. One of the most merciful things God can give to us is the suffering that reveals that we're not in control, that we've never been in control. That's one of the most gracious gifts God can give us, to show us our weakness and to show us we're not in control. Suffering is a gracious gift that reveals all the control that we thought we had. It's just an illusion. All the control over your money, all the control over your health, all the control over your income. God's knocking all of these things out from under us in this season of the coronavirus to say, you've never really been in control of those anyway. And it's a gracious gift. It's, as one pastor says, a warm blanket to our souls to know that God is in control so I don't have to be. That's what Paul's saying. I can boast in my weakness because God's strong. I don't have to be. Now, for those of you who are control freaks like I can be myself, you may be thinking, okay, so how do I control my lack of control and the midst of losing my control? How do I control this? One of the worst things that you can do in these moments with the anxiety and the worry over a loss of control is to pretend that you're strong even when you don't have any control over anything. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. If you feel out of control, if you feel like there is nothing you're clinging to that you can make happen, this is a good place to be. Because when you are out of control, God's in control. When you are weak, God is strong. In the end, all of our fears and our concerns, every single one of them, most of those fears and anxieties are illegitimate. Some of them are absolutely legitimate. But every single one of our fears and anxieties, I just want you to think 20,000 years from now, will any of them matter? 20,000 years from now, into eternity, none of those things will matter. With the king of glory, looking back on what we were afraid of, it's going to feel silly to us. 
So let's boast in our weakness. Let's boast in being out of control and saying, God, you're in control. And you are good. What about difficult decisions? Number three. So we've got trials. We've got feeling weak. What about difficult decisions? Maybe you're faced with some difficult decisions in these moments. What am I going to do? What's going to happen? What, what should I be doing next? Turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This is a, a psalm that David wrote after knowing and experiencing the forgiveness of God. He's writing it, but then God takes the pen, as it were, in verse 8, and says, let me instruct you. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, that's speaking specifically to the aspect of forgiveness that God encourages, invites us to be forgiven by him as we repent, as we place our trust in his forgiveness. Turn from sin, turn to him. That's what this verse is saying. But it's an overarching verse to also speak to any form of instruction or counsel that we need. We need counsel. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to counsel you. We need instruction. And God said, I, I'll do it. I'll instruct you with my eye upon you. You're not going to leave my gaze. As we read in James chapter 1, verse 5, he will give wisdom to those who are asking, who lack it. Please, God, give wisdom. He says, I'll give it to you without finding fault without partiality, without looking, saying, you need to earn wisdom or deserve wisdom. He just says, if you ask, I'll give it to you. Turn back in Psalms to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. I love that. He instructs you, but who is he instructing? He's instructing sinners. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. You may say from Psalm 32, okay, I know that God instructs us, and we can ask for wisdom, but I don't think I deserve it. I'm a sinner. Guess what? The one qualification in verse 8 of Psalm 25 is, if you are a sinner, you can be instructed by God. He's good, and he's upright, and he instructs sinners in the way. If you say, man, I'm a sinner, and that means that I have no right to ask God for instruction. I have no ability to cling to any wisdom that he would give me. That's all you need. Humility, right? Verse 9, he leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. You just need to know you're a sinner and let that destroy your pride. And God says, now you are qualified to receive my instruction. If you're facing a difficult decision, there are so many verses in the Bible that say you can turn to Christ and let him lead you and instruct you. Number four, what about money? Number four, a fourth anxiety, a fourth fear, a fourth worry. Money. Money is a big one. Money is, uh, especially in these days, money is a very big fear and worry. What's going to happen with our finances? Look at Philippians chapter four. Turn to Philippians chapter four. In Philippians 4, verse 10, Paul is going to speak to this issue of contentment that God's going to provide even in the midst of our want, in the midst of when we are struggling with need. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you, Philippian church, have revived your concern for me. You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They were concerned that Paul was going to be fed in prison. Uh, he's in prison as he's writing this. They were concerned that he was going to be fed, he was going to be clothed, he was going to be taken care of, but they, they lacked an opportunity. They couldn't find a way to get him any food or money or they didn't, didn't have it. But he says this, verse 11, not that I speak from want, because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things. That means I can be content in all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. That's like Psalm 23, because the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing that I need that I'm lacking. You have taken care of me, God, and you're going to continue to take care of me. If you go all the way down to verse 19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Is God in need of money? Is God in need of riches? Is God struggling with his finances? No, he has every single 
a thing that he needs to provide for us. He has everything. He's infinite. He has, according to the riches that he has in glory, in Christ Jesus, he will supply our needs. Now, I wanted to just say, this does not mean that we always get money when we need it. That we always get food when we need it. Even in Matthew 6, we talked about it just briefly last week, but some of you had questions about it, and I I appreciated those questions of what happens when we look back at history and we see brothers and sisters around the world who die from starvation. Is God not fulfilling his promises in Matthew 6 to provide? He provides for the birds of the air, and he won't provide for his own kids? Well, it's important to understand what Paul says and what he means when he's talking about here in Philippians 4. What is a need? And what Jesus is talking about, what he's going to provide. Remember we talked about seek first the kingdom of God, the glory of God. If you trust in Christ and you seek first his kingdom and his glory, then God will provide everything that you need to accomplish that, to glorify God. And sometimes that means that God will allow you to go through trials where you don't have food, but he will still strengthen you to glorify him. He will always take care of you, not in a sense of you always having abundance. Paul says, I don't have abundance. I've gone without many times. Even in Matthew, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the birds of the air and that Jesus feeds them. Matthew 10, he says, they also die. The birds of the air die, but Jesus knows when they fall out of the sky. He knows every single bird that falls by name, and you are much more important than the birds. This doesn't mean that we will never go hungry. It doesn't mean that we will never go without money. It does mean that in our want, in our need, God will provide us with the grace to strengthen us so that we can accomplish his purposes in glorifying him. We will always have that readily available, supplied to us according to his riches. Turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. When we're struggling with the concern and the care of money, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We've brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. If we have food and covering, with these we can be content. But those who desire to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is an important verse to hold in our tool belt, spiritually speaking, when dealing with the topic of finances. He says, many, because they desire with greed in their hearts to get rich, They've pierced themselves with many griefs. They've plunged themselves into ruin and destruction. That's why I pray constantly the prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. You can just write this one down. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. The the writer of the Proverbs says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me enough that I don't steal, but don't give me so much that I forget you. And brothers and sisters, if you're in the midst of struggling financially, number one, this is an opportunity to trust God. Number two, reach out to the church and ask for help because we'd love to help you if we're able to do that. But number three, this is a time to pray this prayer and say, God, I trust you. I don't desire to be rich and you're allowing me to get that. I also don't desire to be impoverished. Please give me enough that I trust you, right? What does Jesus say in And the the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Let me trust you for today. Let me trust you, and I know you'll provide. Uh, uh, J.C. Ryle says it this way, Banks may break, and money may make itself wings and fly away. But the man who has come to Christ by faith will still possess something which can never be taken away from him. Can I just ask your own heart this morning, Do you know Christ as your greatest treasure? Do you love him more than anything in this world? Do you know the forgiveness that you have in him? And do you cherish him because of his great love for you? 
If you do not, today is the day to repent, to trust in him, to let all of your guilt, shame, all of your fear, all of your anxiety, all of your sin be placed upon Jesus as it was at the cross and see Jesus as your substitute, your sacrifice. You deserve punishment for sin. I deserve punishment for my sin. And yet Jesus graciously said, I'm going to take that punishment on myself so you can go free. If you understand that love that he has for you, then you will love him back. That's what 1 John says. We love him because he first loved us. So press into the love of God for you and turn in faith to him this morning. Being useless. This is the fifth question that we might have and worry and anxiety that we might have. Maybe we feel like we're useless. Maybe we feel like anything that we do, it's not going to produce anything worthwhile. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This is a verse that I quote to myself all the time, all the time. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Your toil in Christ is never in vain, ever. This is such an encouragement to us. When you're ministering to other people, when you're evangelizing, when you're discipling other people, when you're telling them about Jesus and you feel like this is falling on deaf ears, nothing is happening in this, Paul says none of your ministry and your toil and your labor is ever done in vain. I cannot tell you how many times this verse has been a rock for me in ministry. I remember one time uh, a buddy of mine called me up, asked me to go do a, a summer camp with his church, with his youth group. I said, sure, I'd love to do it. Drove many hours. Uh, he told me probably somewhere between 250 and 300 people will be there. I thought, great, this will be fun. And uh, drove a long way and got to the camp. Uh, it was like a literal campsite. It wasn't like you know, a campgrounds where you know, it's a youth camp. No, this was an actual campsite. Got there, and there was this huge amphitheater. And I thought, man, this is going to be so cool, this huge amphitheater. I was going to be able to speak. I was going to be able to share the gospel. I had five different sessions that I could speak, and it was going to be awesome. I was going to proclaim the gospel to between two, two and 250 and 300 kids. I got there. I saw this huge amphitheater, and I kept driving. And then there was this tiny little campground with all these little tents. There were about seven or eight tents. And I thought, hmm, well, I guess they'll come too and participate in the camp. Where, where is everybody? Turns out, the 300 people that my buddy thought were going to be there ended up being 13 people. And notice I said 13 people because it wasn't 13 students plus leaders. It was about six students and seven youth workers. And I remember showing up thinking, I think I've wasted my time. I remember thinking, I I thought there were going to be a lot more people that I could share the gospel with. And this verse popped right into my mind. Man, who knows if one of those 13 people is going to be the next Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, Amy Carmichael. Who knows what God's going to do? All I know is that my labor in Christ Jesus is not in vain. And that is a promise you can hold as well. If you're counseling somebody, if you're loving somebody, if you're reaching out to somebody, you know that your labor in Christ is not in vain. You could also just write down Isaiah chapter 55 verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 55, 9 through 11. You know these verses where God says, my word will not return back to me empty, meaningless, void. It will accomplish what I sent it out to do. So speak God's words knowing that that is never going to be useless or in vain. What about number six? What about opponents? What about people that are your enemies? What about people that would try to undermine you? What about people that would be trying to do you harm? Just write down Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Your greatest enemy, if God is on your side, your greatest enemy can never be against you, successfully against you. They may kill you, but they can never take you out of God's hands. What about number seven? Uh, You don't understand what's happening. You're wondering, what's going on? God, are you going to answer me? God, what's happening? You could go to the entire book of Job. You could also go back to Isaiah 55, verse 9, which God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways aren't your ways. That we can rest. Okay, God, you know what's going on, even though I don't. You could go to Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, uh, which we'll probably be looking at um, in the weeks to come. 
Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk says, God, please, what are you doing? What's going on? And God says, even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't even understand it. It wouldn't even make sense to you. God is infinite. We're finite. Uh, there's, there's nothing that God could ultimately reveal about his infinite plan that would even make sense to us. It would be like us trying to explain the internet to an ant. That doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. You can't explain that to an ant because we're in two different worlds. God is in a completely different world. That's why Deuteronomy 29, 29, that's another reference that you need to hold in your tool belt when you're going through something and you, you think, God, I, I want an answer. I don't know what you're doing. God says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the mysterious things belong to God. There are certain things that we won't know. Maybe we'll never know. But the things that he's revealed to us, those are ours to cling to. And these are promises he's revealed to us to cling to. What about... Getting old. This is number eight. What about getting old? Fear number eight. What's going to happen when we get old? I don't know about you. I don't, I don't really feel old, but my body tells me I'm aging. I need, I need reading glasses. My eyes have been looking at stuff and having to go further than even my long arms could do to read. And uh, So many different ailments that happen as you're getting old, and I don't even think I'm that old. Like, what's going on? What's it going to be like when I'm twice this age if God allows me to live that long? Isaiah chapter 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth and have, carried, and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. <laughs> We're not going to be the same, but God's going to be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I've done it. I'm going to carry you. I will bear you, and I will deliver you. God's going to take care of me. God's going to hold me up. He's going to be my strength, even in the midst of old age. Just two more really quickly. What about not persevering to the end? What if you fear with anxiety over spiritually? How am I going to make it to the end without falling, without failing, without making shipwreck of my faith? Three verses. Philippians 1.6, you know it. God who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, you can write it down. It's saying the same thing. We will persevere by God's amazing grace. He's going to hold us. He's not changing. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 is the new covenant promise. I will write my law on their hearts and they will obey it. I will make them obey it. I will enable them to obey. God's going to get us safely home. I bank on God's faithfulness in my life and not my fickleness to get me to the finish line. And finally, number 10, what about death? I don't know if you fear death. I think that's one of the, the benefits of the coronavirus is death is, is right in front of us. It's staring us in the eyes. Do you fear death? Just a couple passages. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 7. Not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And for, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. You're God's. You'll never be able to be separated from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we will be looking at next uh, Lord's Day, Lord willing, Resurrection Sunday. Paul says the same thing. There's no, no sting of death. It's removed. It's gone. Listen to how one pastor put it. There were two pastors in the 18th century, Andrew Gifford and John Ryland. Andrew Gifford was older and died before John Ryland. And in 1784, when John Ryland was speaking at the graveside service of Andrew Gifford, Ryland said these words, Farewell, thou, thou dear old man. We leave thee in the possession of death, until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall all be nothing, but life and death will be swallowed up in victory. 
Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. When we pass through the waters, God will be with us. I love that picture even in Pilgrim's Progress when they're going to pass through the waters of death and Hopeful is excited to go through because he knows on the other side is the celestial city and Christian is struggling with fear. How do I go through? He knows God will be with him. God will be with him. Ten different questions, fears, anxieties that we might have with multiple different verses that we can cling to, put in our tool belt to pull out in those moments when we're struggling. Ten different questions, anxieties, and fears and promises that God has given to us to cling to in the midst of them. All these promises are true. They were purchased at Calvary. They were blood-bought. Even this morning, which is Palm Sunday, remember in It's Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, where the Pharisees tell Jesus, hey, you should get out of here. Uh, You should go back to Jerusalem. They were saying that because they wanted to kill him. Jesus says, I'm not leaving now, but I will go back to Jerusalem. And the next time I show up, I'm going to show up to a big crowd saying, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in in the name of God. If you and I had been there, we would have said, no, Jesus, I don't think that's going to happen. Even Thomas said that. Remember when Jesus said, we need to go to Bethany to take care of Lazarus. He's died. And Thomas says, well, let's go back and die with you. They knew there's a a bounty on Jesus' head. The, The religious leaders hated him and wanted him to die. And Jesus says, hey, the next time I show up in Jerusalem, it's not going to be uh, to be killed in that mo- moment on Palm Sunday. No, it's, it's going to be the, the cheers, uh, the, the crowd praising me and saying, Hosanna, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. We would never have thought that that could have happened. And yet Jesus made that promise, and every promise that God makes is true. And it did. That's why Palm Sunday happened. God made it happen. So that the next time Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on that donkey to the crowds of people saying, Hosanna. All of God's promises are true. You can trust them. And brothers and sisters, it's very hard for anxiety to survive when we live in these promises. But the bottom line for most of our anxieties is that we, not that we don't know the promises, but that we tend to struggle to believe God's good. I think that's the basis for our anxieties. We know God's going to care for us, but we tend to struggle Is God good? Remember from a few weeks ago, Horatius Bonner said, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Anxiety will never lose its power over you until you conquer this issue. Do you believe that God is good? If you do, these promises are yours to cling to in Christ that will destroy every anxiety and worry that you have. If you don't believe God is good, and this week is a perfect week to ask that question and to see Christ hanging on a cross in your place, condemned he stood because of his great love for you. What I want to do now is I want to pray and ask God's blessing on the rest of our Lord's Day, but I want to show you a song. It's a song that a a dear friend of mine wrote and, and is playing and singing. And it's asking this question, God, are you good in the midst of trials? And it's a declaration from his heart and from ours as well. God, you are good. You're always good. And I'm going to cling to that in the middle of the storm. Father, we thank you for this amazing time that we're able to spend together. You are always good, even though our hearts struggle to believe that. Encourage us now, even as we listen to this song and then as we respond through song that you are good. You are always good. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. My times of sorrow and of joy, oh God, are For every blessing flows from you and flees at your command. Lord, if you choose to take away the treasures I have stored, 
Remind me that all I receive remains forever yours. You are good to me. You are all I need. I will taste and see. You are always good. Lord, how could I distrust Your word or doubt Your providence? Your mercy floods my fleeting hours and every circumstance. You work all things for endless good. For those who fear Your name, Your perfect love will not forsake the souls You have reclaimed. You are good to me. You are all I need. I will. You are always good to me. My Father, grant me faith to know that Your hands hold my lot. That my inheritance is Christ, and here beneath His cross, all my eternal longings find the promise of Your rest, where times of sorrow and of joy reveal. Your faithfulness. You are good to me. You are all I need. I will taste and see. You are always good. For you are good to me. You are. goodness of God.
Well, to this we hold. Our sin has been defeated. Christ will bring us safely home. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's day as you trust in his promises and cling to him alone. And we will see you all week this week. Check your emails. We'll be sending out videos and resources for your Passion Week. And then we will see you back here next Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, for an amazing celebration together. God bless you all.